morning. I'm going to be reading Exodus chapter 1, the whole chapter, so 22 verses, and that is page 45 in your pew Bibles. So once again, it's Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 22, it's the whole chapter. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pitham and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this, and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is the word of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 1, I'll invite you to turn back there in case it's closed accidentally on your laps. We uh, begin this morning a new series in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. I say new But really, this is just a continuation of the story of God's promises that we began uh, when we looked at the book of Genesis. It's it's difficult to see this in our English translations, but in the original Hebrew, the very first word of Exodus is the word and. Now, uh, beginning a sentence, let alone a whole book, with the word and is something that would have given my English teachers a conniption. But it's something that Moses, under divine inspiration, found it necessary to do. 
and he understands himself simply to be continuing this story that he began in Genesis. In the book of Exodus, we, we're going to get to follow these very great and precious promises that God has made to first to Abraham and then confirmed to Abraham, uh, to Isaac, and then to Jacob. We're going to get to see how these promises fare in the face of a lot of hardship and opposition. I expect that in our time together here in this book, we're going to learn a lot about our God. We're going to get to see, for example, how awesome he is in his holiness, in his sovereign power, the types of things that we've already sung about today. We'll get to see showcased for us in this book. We'll get to see how exceedingly good and kind and faithful he is. And at the same time, we're going to learn a lot about ourselves, I think, um, during our time together in Exodus. We're going to learn a lot about ourselves because this people that God is forming for his own possession, these Israelites, this nation, they are representative of all humanity. And so they are going to accurately display all of our nature, basically. They're going to display our same tendencies to complain, to sin, to forget, to be faithless. And we're going to have plenty of occasions to be reminded of our desperate need for redemption. Best of all, though, Exodus is going to provide us with one of the greatest possible pictures of the redemption that we so desperately need. The redemption that has been accomplished for us by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to get to see in a fresh and beautiful way, just how he leads a people out of slavery to sin and does so for a particular purpose. Now, that, that last theme is so prominent in Exodus that I've taken that as the title for our sermon series. We're going to call this Freed to Worship. Freed to Worship. And if you're a Christian here today, that is your testimony. You've been freed. You've been rescued You've been brought out, that's what the word exodus means, you've been brought out of your slavery to sin and to Satan. And this is also your calling. Your calling is to worship, to worship the one who has redeemed you with everything that you are and all that you have. We're talking about whole life response of worship because of our great redemption. Now, I've been looking forward to studying this book with you for a long time. Uh, you might wonder about that sentence. What does he mean by a long time? Does long time describe how long I've been looking forward to this? Or does it describe how long it's going to take us to study Exodus? And the answer to that question is yes. So let's just get right into it. Exodus chapter 1. You've, you may have noticed that there's a lot of math in this chapter. Uh, we see in this chapter what the Egyptians might call multiplication problems. Now, starting with his, his book with the word and, we suspect that Moses is probably failing English, but it seems he's more of a math guy. 
So we're going to work through this passage following the order of operation. And if you've got an outline, this will be how you can fill it in. Parentheses, exponents, division, multiplication, subtraction, addition. The order of operations for math. And it just so happens that those order of operations follows pretty closely with the order of this passage. So, so that's pretty handy. Uh, let's look first then at the first order of business, which is uh, dealing with the parentheses. I just want to clear something up, though, before we really get into this, because a couple of days ago, I realized that the way that I was taught the order of operations varies slightly from the way that you were taught the order of operations. We run into that kind of a problem from time to time, don't we? You know, uh, growing up in Canada, I was taught this mnemonic, bed mass, Brackets, exponents, division, multiplication, addition, subtraction, bed mass. I just discovered that you guys were taught PEMDAS. Please excuse my dear Aunt Sally. Parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. Now, I caught that discrepancy a little bit too late. So some of you might have a sermon outline that has a B in it instead of a P. I apologize for that. Uh, the outline is really supposed to make things easier, not more challenging. And here I am complicating it. But the bottom line is you can go ahead and call this point whatever you'd like, brackets or parentheses. It doesn't really matter. But this is essentially what the author has given to us in these uh, first six verses. He's given us some parenthetical remarks so that we will be up to speed when the narrative really kind of takes off. These are things that you need to know as sort of background information coming into this. And, you know, in case you haven't been in Genesis for close to a year, Moses is very kind to give us a refresher in parentheses. So first of all, we need to be reminded of something that's prompted by the phrase in verse 1, the sons of Israel. There is some purposeful ambiguity there. Um, because Israel, it, you know, is another name for Jacob. So sons of Israel, that's a parallel expression to descendants of Jacob, which you can read about at the beginning of verse 5. But you also know that Israel denotes the, the nation, the people of God. This, this people that the Lord right now is in the process of forming for his own possession. So sons of Israel is also a parallel expression to the people of Israel in verse 7, or the Hebrews in the latter half of the chapter. Okay, so there, there's that. That's just a little bit of... Um, help, I think. Uh, they're just very subtle parenthetical remarks, but already we see that what's in view here are the promises of God that he first made to Abraham in Genesis 12, when he said, I will make you into a great nation. In Exodus, we're going to get to see that nation begin to really take shape. And thus, what we're going to get to see 
is the promises of God be fulfilled. And that's an exciting thing to, uh, to know is on the horizon. There's another reminder in verse 1 and in verse 5. And it's found in the phrase, came to Egypt with Jacob. And Joseph was already in Egypt. So a big, big thing that we need to know in these parentheses is why Egypt is the setting for the book of Exodus. Remember that this family is in this country because of a severe, severe famine. And because in the providence of God, in his great kindness, he sent one of these brothers, one of these sons ahead, Joseph, so that the people might be provided for, so that they would have food to eat in the midst of a severe famine. And you'll recall that the Pharaoh at that time was so appreciative of everything that Joseph had done that he, with open arms, welcomed this whole extended family to settle in Goshen which was the very best part of Egypt. That's going to be important, and so it's good that we're reminded of those kinds of things in these brackets. Finally, the author's parentheses contain the names of Jacob's sons who came with him to Egypt. Well, it contains 11 out of the 12 of them. You, you can see that he doesn't include Joseph because he was already in Egypt. So you can see that Moses is taking us back not to Genesis 50, but he's taking us back a little earlier than that to Genesis 46, uh, where the family is traveling to Egypt to settle there. And in Genesis 46, we have um, an accounting of Jacob's sons and grandsons, all of the, the people that had entered into Egypt, and the conclusion of that chapter was all the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. That's Genesis 46, 27. Exodus 1 verse 5 says essentially the same thing. So that's going to be the point of departure here. These 70 people. But actually it's, it's not quite the point of departure because you'll see in verse 6 another parenthetical remark that Joseph died, and all his brothers, all that generation died. The, the ones that were mentioned have now died. And so you see what the author is doing now is fast-forwarding in time to get to his real point of departure, which we're going to come to shortly. But that's a lot of, I think, very helpful reminders that the author has kind of squeezed into the parenthesis of verses 1 to 6. So then let's see, secondly, the exponents. There's still some fast-forwarding going on in verse 7, and likely a lot of it. These initial verses in Exodus cover probably a few hundred years. But the most important thing to note about these centuries was the incredible growth of the people of Israel. It, it was, you might say, exponential. This is a population explosion. It's the only way you could really describe it. I did some basic calculations, and to go from 70, and that's probably just the, the males. That's not a chauvinistic thing to do. That's just a 
patriarchal thing to do. Uh, but you, you, can, you can estimate the size of that initial population by any count. It's, it's a small number. And then you do some math for, you can figure out that there was something like 5 million men and women, Israelites basically, that, that came out of the Exodus about a year later. So to go from 70 or 150 to 5 million in 431 years is nothing short of spectacular. It's a growth rate of 2.45% if you're interested. The population is doubling every, something like every 28 years. And if you were to graphically depict this sort of growth, it would look like a, a giant pyramid, which is actually quite appropriate, I think. Now, it w it's going to be tempting for us to think about this exponential growth in very naturalistic sorts of ways. Um, I don't think we realize the extent to which we've imbibed the, the, the worldview of the day, which looks at things just purely physically, materialistically, biologically. And you might even hear some of that in the text. Um, you might hear it in, say, the midwives' description of the Hebrew women. They, they said they're, they're vigorous. Uh, I, you know, you can paraphrase and say... They're like baby-making machines. I, I grew up around a lot of Dutch people, and these people tended to have big families. And uh, the women, let's just say, um, I've heard their husbands say things like, even if they look at their wives, so much as look at their wives, they end up pregnant. So let's just go ahead and, and admit that we are very comfortable with the kind of natural biological explanations for birth, for population growth. We know where babies come from, and it's not a stork, but it does have to do with birds and bees and all that stuff. We get all of that. But it's very clear to me that Moses wants us to understand the true explanation for human life and growth. Listen to how he describes the growth in verse 7. He says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Literally, the land teemed with them. And I hope that you can immediately recognize this as Genesis language. This comes directly from the mandate that God gave to the first human beings. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, he says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And this is exactly what's happening here, we read. But we, we can't, we have to not separate that part from the first part in Genesis 1, 28. The part that goes, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. You know, you put this together and you understand that the ultimate explanation for, for any kind of growth, not to mention the exponential growth, the, the explanation for that at the end of the day is the extraordinary blessing of God. So what we're reading here in the opening chapter of Exodus 
is a fulfillment of the opening chapter of Genesis. It's a proliferation of humanity, and it's all because of the, the blessing of the creator. But it's not just general. It's also very specific, because in verse 7, there are shades of Genesis 17 shining through, where God said to Abraham, I will multiply you greatly. Or, or what about that passage that Glenn read earlier, Genesis 11, where the Lord said, look towards the heavens and number the stars, if you can do it, so shall your offspring be. So even though the Lord has not even been mentioned yet in the text, with all of these allusions, we're, we're made to understand that there is only one explanation for the exponential growth of the Israelites, and that is because the Lord is blessing them abundantly and fulfilling his promises. Hundreds of years are telescoped into these six verses, but silently, almost imperceptibly, God's people are growing. Now, do you realize the same thing is happening today? That the population of the people of God is silently, almost imperceptibly, but growing most assuredly year by year as sinners are rescued out of their slavery to sin, as they're redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, people in Switzerland, in Singapore, in Santiago, in West Sparta. The kingdom is growing. It started off like a little mustard seed, but now its branches are spreading, and this exponential growth will not stop until the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. This is what the Lord is up to. He's, he's building a people for his praise. Let's look in the third place at division multiplication. Now, the order of these related math operations doesn't matter. There's no real hierarchy here. You're just supposed to take them as they come to you, reading left to right. I don't know if any of that math stuff is coming back to you. But what we come to first in verse 8 is division. It says, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, either so much time had passed that this new pharaoh didn't know the history of his country. He, he didn't know how Joseph had saved Egypt from being destroyed by drought and famine. Or he didn't care, which is probably more likely. Either way, pharaohs come and go, and this new guy comes along, and he doesn't look upon Joseph or his family with any favor at all, certainly not with the favor of that original king. Now, this family's multiplication had become a big problem for the Egyptians. And you can see the pharaoh's problem um, in the text, it, there's actually, there's not one problem that he has. It's, it's multifaceted. Faceted. There's all kinds of 
aspects to his issue, and they're a little bit contradictory. But for one, we can, we can try to figure this out. He says the Israelites have become too many and too mighty. So a, a big concern of his is military. He, he figures that these are foreigners. They've got no natural bonds to Egypt. So that any opportunity that they, ha they might have to enter into an alliance with any of Egypt's many enemies... They're going to be taking that opportunity, join forces, and that would be devastating for his country. Not to mention that the Goshen, where these Israelites are concentrated, that's the best part of the land. Not just in terms of like fertile ground, but militarily speaking, this is a strategic area. And so it's very, uh, very troubling, very concerning to say the least. But as I say, you can, you can tell that the king is conflicted. He's kind of at cross purposes with himself. He doesn't want this people to, to be dangerously populous, if we could put it that way. But he also kind of wants the Israelites in his land. So you can see that at the end of verse 10. Just look there with me. It says, I mean, he's concerned that they might escape the land. So he's worried about their growth, but he also doesn't want them to leave. And this, it seems to me, is an early case of can't live with them and can't live without them. You see, because Pharaoh is interested in exploiting these people for labor. That, that represents his ultimate desire. He, he, he wants to enslave this people and get all kinds of labor out of them. But this also represents what he sees as a solution to his concerns. You know, they, he, he figures that they're not going to have any military strength if we were to just wear them out in forced labor. Like, just make them pay the price physically. So, so we read in verse 11, it says, Therefore he, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. So he's making these people construct a ton of buildings in these strategic cities for the storage of grain and, and provisioning, you know, for military purposes, likely. And, and in that, don't you see a, a sad irony? In the goodness of God and by the wisdom of Joseph, Many storehouses were built in Egypt for the saving of grain during that prolonged drought and famine. And this new pharaoh is forgetting about all of that. He doesn't care about any of that. And now he is cruelly pressing the Israelites into this same service, except doing it by forcing them. Now, where once... The point is this, where there once was harmony and unity among these peoples. Now there's great division. Look at verse 13. It says, the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They couldn't even bear to look at them. And listen to all the words that are just kind of like peppering this whole passage. 
that describe what Israel was made to endure. Look there with me in verse 11. Under taskmasters, um, affliction, heavy burdens. And then in verse 13 and 14, ruthlessness, slavery, bitterness, hard service, all kinds of works. Uh, ruthlessly again, slaves. It's just words piling up so that you can't help but get the picture that this was absolute brutality that the people were subjected to. Now, this is a bit dangerous, but let me just go on record to say that this pharaoh has a legitimate concern. Okay, if you're, if you're the king of a country, you have to be concerned about population growth. And may I also say that it is legitimate to be concerned about a rising population of a people who have no natural ties to the country, who aren't invested at all in it. Now, I'm not a, a kinist or a racist or a Christian nationalist. or I'm none of those ugly things that people these days wanna, might want to paint me as. But this is just basic statecraft, okay? This is... It's been this way for all of human history. If you're a king, if you're a lawmaker, it's legitimate that you would want to preserve your country's identity and culture, let alone its existence. So you're right to think about such things, but here's the thing, and here's the big difference. The policies that you come up with to deal with this challenge must be honorable, and they must preserve human dignity. Pharaoh's policies are the opposite of that. They're just barbaric and they're brutal. And these policies are just getting started at this point. So there's division. There's great division. But what do we find? Smack dab in the middle of that division. And I mean literally right in the middle. The divisions described in verses 11, 13, 14. What do we find in the middle of all of that? Verse 12, multiplication. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Again, even though the Lord has not yet been explicitly mentioned in this passage, his fingerprints are all over this thing. What else explains such blessing in the midst of such brutality? There's no other explanation for that than that the Lord God is sovereignly controlling all of these things. And by the way, friends, this, this is the legacy of the people of God, isn't it? Right down to the present day. We are a people afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, but always manifesting resurrection in our mortal flesh. Tom Petty uh, once imagined that if you stood him up at the gates of hell, he wouldn't back down. And that's just, you know, tough talk from a hard rocker. But for the Christian, this is absolutely true. The gates of hell will not, will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And the Pharaoh is just an early example of what rulers and authorities and governments have discovered all throughout history, which is that when you try to stamp out the people of God, you may just end up starting a revival. Tertullian was exactly right when he observed that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And, and this is, wouldn't you agree, a call to be faithful in the midst of affliction? I know it's easy to lose sight of this fact, but it remains a fact that our sovereign God is in control of history. And this God is a God who delights in reversals. That's going to be a recurring theme. I'll give you a little preview here. That's going to be a recurring theme through the book of Exodus. Indeed, it's a recurring theme throughout all of the Bible. This idea of reversal, that evil befalls the wicked, that they end up falling headfirst into their own traps. And, and that's just a, a reminder maybe for you who are here today, if you're a person that has set yourself against God, you ought to be, you ought to be aware, beware that this is risky business. This is the path only to destruction. Division leads to more multiplication to the glory of God. Let's look finally at subtraction slash addition. Here again, there's no real priority in these related math operations. Addition, subtraction, subtraction, addition. It doesn't matter. You just take them as they come left to right. And what we come to first in verse 15 is subtraction. Subtraction. This is Pharaoh's next policy. Once he sees that his policy about forced labor isn't working, this is stepping up the game. This is much more of a brutal policy. It's the policy of subtraction. It's murder. Infanticide. Specifically, the policy seeks to wipe out the lives of male babies that are born to the people of Israel. And you can, you can kind of see Pharaoh's thinking on this, as, as perverted as it is, that in time this is going to severely diminish any kind of military capability that the Israelites would have. And if he pursued that policy long enough, it's going to lead to the people's extinction the girls were allowed to live no problem there presumably so that he could enslave them so that his his subjects could take them as as a sort of slave wives and their their famous baby making abilities could be put into use by making a bunch of new egyptians and in time the israelites would just be absorbed and erased so this is Pharaoh's thinking. In any case, it's a policy of subtraction. And it starts very kind of quietly. It's on the DL here. It's very subtle. It starts with those who are attending the births of Israelite babies. And so Pharaoh calls in the, the midwives. And in 
in folk, there's probably more midwives than this, but in focus here are two. I don't know if they were like the the nurse managers or, or whatever, but there's two that are um, highlighted here, Shifra and Pua. And he calls them in and says, hey, look, when the Hebrew women are at the birth stool and you see that they've given birth to a son, you shall kill him. If it's a daughter, let it live. Now, I'm not sure, we're not given the details here, not exactly sure how that was supposed to work. You know, of course, there's lots of things that could go wrong during childbirth. So presumably the midwives must have been directed to make sure those things went wrong. But eventually this policy of subtraction goes public and gets even more brutal. So notice this by verse 22. Pharaoh is commanding all his people. If you have come across any Hebrew boy, you shall chuck him into the Nile. The girls you can let live. Well, I can't help but observe, especially on this National Right to Life Sunday, that this brutal policy bears an eerie resemblance to what we do here in the West on far too regular a basis. This is how our culture solves its problems, and not even military problems, but the problem of, I, I need to continue my university career. I, I, need, to, I need to continue my job. We, we engage in a horrid kind of subtraction. We snuff the life out of babies in the womb when they become a problem for us, when they become inconvenient. And don't be fooled, friends. There is, there's no moral difference between abortion and infanticide. The only difference is a matter of six inches or six months or six days. And thus, those, those are not moral distinctions. Those are completely arbitrary. And don't be fooled by all of the euphemisms that people use in order to silence their consciences on this matter. This is not health care. It's not health. It's not care. It's death. It's cruel. Abortion is not a reproductive right. You, you don't have the right to take the life of an innocent human being. And you don't know the first thing about reproduction if you're doing subtracting. Okay, that's the opposite operation. Remember, remember, this is Pharaoh's brutal policy in dealing bitterly and ruthlessly with people, with the people of Israel. This is, this is Pharaoh wanting to just hammer these people into the ground. That's what makes him execute this kind of horrendous policy today we would hail Pharaoh as a champion of women. We, we'd put him forward, we'd make him the Democratic nominee for president. But, but Pharaoh slide into deeper depths of depravity in the space of just a few verses. And our nations slide into depravity in the space of just a couple of centuries ought to be a a vivid lesson to us about the exceeding sinfulness of sin and how 
quickly and how effectively we can deaden our conscience and our nation's conscience on this matter. Friends, what we need today is more people like these Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. And, and look, look at what the, element, the missing element is here. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. They, they, believe, they feared God rather than man, and so it made them say, we must obey God rather than you, O king. And don't miss it. This is, this is what will make abortion unthinkable in our day. I'm, I'm very, I'm, I'm stoked. I don't even know how to say it as much. I'm so happy about favorable Supreme Court um, decisions. I'm, I'm thrilled that the, that the tide that public opinion seems to be turning a little bit in the favor of life. But let's not, let's not make any mistake. The thing that is going to make abortion unthinkable is if people begin to fear the Lord. This is the problem. There is no fear of God before the eyes of the, of, of the people in our country. And so I'm, I'm thankful for organizations like the Pregnancy Resource Center of the Valleys and of Compass Care and, and others that are on the front lines of making abortion unthinkable. But, but we, we must not abandon the fear of the Lord. This is, this is what Shifra and Pua were compelled by, and this is why they were able to say no. And so, of course, Pharaoh hauls them in and said, hey, what's up? Why have you done this? Why have you let the male children live? And Shifra and Pua explain, and I like this because this is like a bit of a slam. Verse 19, you know, the, these Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous. They are... They give birth before we even get there. They, these are women that don't need any epidurals. They, they basically, the baby just pops out even before our chariot gets there. And what can we do? Now, there's a lot of discussion in the literature, and I'm not going to uh, bore you with it this morning. Did these women lie? Did they at the very least, did they just kind of conceal the truth? May, was this true? Is this just half the story? Who knows? Who knows? What we do know is that whatever, that they, whatever they did, and because they feared the Lord and obeyed God rather than man, the Lord was totally pleased with them. So if you want to, if you want to dig, go down the, the rabbit hole of moral philosophy about lying you'll uh you're free to do so yeah it's a it's a fun exercise and shifra and pua inevitably come up in those discussions but the bottom line is that the lord is pleased by their action by their inaction and and look how look at verse 20 and so god dealt well with them 
And, and how did he deal well with them? Verse 21. Addition. Addition. He gave them families. He allowed them to um, give birth, likely to many offspring, and then likely those offspring became prominent people in, in uh, Israel, in Egypt. And I just love this. Here's another interesting thing about um, this whole passage, that we, we come across the name of, you know, we come across discussions of Pharaoh and the king, but that Pharaoh is never, Pharaoh is just a general Egyptian ancient term for king. It's, it's not a specific name. And um, people are just dying to find out, the biblical scholars are dying to find out who was this particular Pharaoh at this time. And Moses couldn't care less. This Pharaoh doesn't get his name recorded, but these two lowly servants, Shifra and Pua, you're going to remember their names and you're going to remember their families because these were women who feared the Lord above all else. And uh, their names mean beauty and splendor, respectively. And, and that's the, the legacy of all those who would fear the Lord and disobey uh, an ungodly king. Well, that's a good start. Thank you for your patience. I'm, like I said, I'm, I'm really excited to dig into this book with you. Um, that's just kind of a taste of the t kinds of things that we will discover. And uh, we don't want to just learn, but we want to live. And so I'd encourage you, uh, when you go out from this place, to go out in the fear of the Lord and in uh, grateful service to him.